All right, guys, let's take a trip to Africa. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. gentlemen welcome to this episode of the western huntsman podcast this is jim huntsman the host coming at you from the broken time studio right here in clark fork idaho how you guys doing week of uh valentine's so hope that uh panned out well for you guys <laughs> so i've got a uh i've got a really good episode lined up for you today and i'm really excited about this guest and i think you guys are going to get a lot out of this um before we get there i do want to send out like a quick shout out to uh, my buddy Andy down in Boise, Idaho, uh, who owns Get Your Meat LLC. And Get Your Meat is a local butcher shop that Andy started a couple years back and it's been growing like crazy. Um, and he sent me some samples to try out. Uh, I think he sent them in the hopes that I'd, I'd uh, maybe talk about it on the show. And he was right. So, uh, great job, Andy. Uh, Andy does a great job. Obviously, if you if you pay attention to what the name of his company is, Get Your Meat, uh, you're not going to take your elk or your bear or whatever and get somebody else's meat back. You're going to get exactly, he does one animal at a time, and the way he processes these animals, he's got a lot of talent. Uh, he's a skilled butcher, and it's, it's, a, it's a great product, and it's yours. Uh, so great concept, great company. I really like these stories of companies starting in somebody's garage and like growing into something bigger. You guys know if you listen to the show, uh, that's that's what I really love seeing. So Andy, I appreciate it. Thanks again for the meat package. We loved it. Uh, we're still working on getting through all of it. Uh, so thank, thanks again for setting that up. And guys, if you're in the Boise area and need a butcher, check out Andy at Get Your Meat LLC. You can find him on Facebook and Instagram and he didn't pay me anything but the meat to say that. So, um, the other announcement I want to make with in terms of time of year, guys, it's February. And as we are gearing up for spring bear hunts, I want uh, just to let you guys know if you have been paying attention in the show notes. Last year, I had uh, my friend in Alaska, Jess Gann, who she owns a company called Batum 907. And she is one of the world's foremost um, bear hunters out of Alaska, uh, an amazing human that does an amazing job with her products. So if you guys need, uh, if you're in states that allow it, uh, products for, for baiting bears, uh, jump on baitum907.com and get you an order. And she gave us a discount to use, uh, which is beta, or I'm sorry, <laughs> I said it wrong. Huntsman 10 gets you 10% off, off your uh, Batum 907 order. The only reason I bring that up now is because we need to gear up and uh, it's, it's coming. So don't, don't wait too long to get that bait and those scent products. Uh, I love the scent ball. I hang the scent ball in the tree above my bait barrel and it's amazing. So check it out this week, folks, ladies and gentlemen, I have got somebody, um, that I've really wanted to get on the show. I was introduced 
I don't know, six six or eight weeks ago uh, to Sue, Sue Tidwell. And she is an author of a book called Cries of the Savannah, an adventure, an awakening, a journey to understanding African wildlife conservation. What really makes this uh, the perception of, or I guess the standpoint that she writes this from, super interesting to me. Uh, not only is Sue a fellow Idahoan, a North Idahoan at that, uh, I don't know. Is Grangeville North Idaho, Sue? Do, do you consider that yeah. North Idaho? Yeah, we consider that North Idaho, yes. I feel like that's right on the southernmost part of North Idaho, so I think it counts. Yeah, we're right kind of in that panhandle, right when the narrow starts up, you mm-hmm. know. But Yep, yep. Uh, it's a great town. I, I actually really love Grangeville. Is that little uh, is that little shop, the outdoor shop, still there? They've got like the camo. Yes, it is. And, it is. is. It? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the name of that shop? I, I want to give her a shout out. I know the owner. Oh gosh, you're gonna <laughs> put I have you to on the spot. Cottonwood, so I live 15 miles away, and I'm, and I'm going to go totally blank. My husband would tell you in a heartbeat. But, yeah, I um, can't. I can't remember. Oh the gosh, name of I'm it. so sorry, and I feel bad. I can't give him a shout out. I'm I'm going blank. No, that's okay. I can. I, I'll look it up on the on the internet here in just a minute. But, um, Grangeville, where and this isn't where Sue is originally from, but Sue has spent a lifetime, uh, kind of being around hunters and. Uh, growing up in Pennsylvania with a family that hunted and had some reservations about it. And after, after years went with her husband, Rick to Africa on, on a hunt. And I'm not going to spill all the beans. I'm going to let Sue explain this much better than I can articulate it. But um, she, she widens her understanding of conservation, whether it is here in the States or somewhere like Africa and and the differences and the nuances between the two different places are important to compare. And the, the book is amazing. And I'm, I'm going to be giving away a, one of these books, um, for somebody in the audience here, which by the way, you can uh, find the book on Amazon and I'll, I'll put that in the show notes and all that. Uh, but we're going to, we're going to do a book giveaway and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little while. So, uh, Sue, welcome to the show. I appreciate you joining me and, uh, how you doing? Well, hi Jim. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate, um, being on here and I'm happy anytime I can talk about Africa. So, (laughs) so I appreciate you having me on. Well, before we get to Africa, can you give us a, uh, like a synopsis of how you grew up in Pennsylvania and how you ended up in Idaho? Sure, sure. Um, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania, so I grew up, I have four brothers and a dad, everyone hunted. So I grew up in a hunting family, so it really wasn't so much that I was against hunting. I I understood it. We ate meat most of my life. I mean, deer meat and, you know, my favorite meal is um, deer burger or spaghetti sauce. So um, <laughs> so I understood hunting in America. I understood deer hunting and elk hunting and not necessarily elk when I was growing up because that was so far from us, but um I understand deer and turkey hunting. And so, you know, it wasn't, I knew hunters not to be these evil people like they're sometimes portrayed. They're good, hardworking people. They care about the animals. They care about conservation. So I knew all that stuff. So, of course, I ended up, you know, I ended up moving to Alaska, you know, through twists and turns of life. I um, I worked in a steel mill for ten, in Pennsylvania for 10 years. And then I I just anyway, I ended up in Alaska. I needed a change from Pennsylvania, so I ended up in Anchorage, Alaska, and went to being a flight attendant of all things from a steel mill worker. And um, met my husband up there, and he's originally from Idaho. So after a few years, when we got um, 
his daughter wanted to come live with us. We moved back down to Idaho, in rural Idaho. So that's how I ended up in Idaho. And your husband, Rick, he's uh, grew up on a ranch kind of in that Grangeville area, Cottonwood area. Yeah, it's a small, you know, modest ranch by Idaho standards. You know, they have about 60 head of cattle and I think they have 20, 30 horses. But yeah, he grew up in right on the breaks above the Salmon River. So right what? on the edge of the prairie overlooking the salmon, basically. Oh, that's such a beautiful area. I love that. So It is um, beautiful. Not, yeah. not a terrible place to, to be. And I'll bet the winters are a little better than they uh, were in Alaska, huh? Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> you know, and it depends what elevation you're at, too. You know, it's just kind of crazy, um, that difference in elevations. Uh, being from Pennsylvania, you know, it's kind of the same everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> in Idaho, you can drive 10 minutes and you can be out of snow. You can drive. You know, it's just crazy, the different yeah. changes. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of lots of disparity in the landscape, for sure, in Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, uh, I, I was I was fascinated with some of the stories you told in the book about um, Rick being a bush pilot in, in Alaska. Um, that's always something like I, I've, I've wanted to do that and my wife wouldn't allow me because she thinks it's too dangerous. So I can't fly. She won't let me. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely dangerous. He, he's got some hair-raising stories. I could write a book just about that. I'll but, bet. Uh, yeah, that flying up in that Alaska territory, that's, you know, landing on runways with only headlights of a four-wheeler to guide you down. And it's it's just kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah, nuts. Nuts. But when you, so you guys, you guys end up moving back to Alaska. Had you, or I'm sorry, back to Idaho. Had you guys, had you visited Idaho prior to that? Yeah, I did. We went there several times, you know, to introduce me to his family and everything. And I, of course, fell in love with it. You know, we had already been in Anchorage for three years at that point. So I was ready for another change. You know, I, I loved, I loved Alaska and the hiking and it was just, oh, it was just such a, lifetime experience mm-hmm. but then i also fell in love with idaho once he introduced me to idaho and the horses and the ranch life and so you know i'm always ready for a new adventure so i was excited when it came to that i mean i had to give up being a flight attendant because when you know somebody had to be home with mandy all the time um, when we when she came to live with us but rick continued uh, the two weeks on two weeks off for a while flying in the bush you know oh, wow. so okay. um, we did we did that for a few years and then we started our own um, business. Um, he then he started flying the smoke jumper ship. So he was um, he flew the twin otter so that the smoke jumpers could jump out into the fires. You know, and um, and then from there we ended up buying a few small planes and took over the fire spotting business. So we um, had little planes that flew over when when there was lightning strikes in the summer. We contracted out to the Forest Service and we searched for fires and then reported back to the Forest Service and then they decided how they were going to fight them, whether they were going to use smoke jumpers or fire crews or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Oh, I didn't know that. Huh. Cool. That's awesome. So I, it, that takes a uh, totally different breed of person, A, to be um, <laughs> somebody who who flies smoke jumpers into forest fires and uh, on another level, jumping out of an airplane into a fire is an interesting thing. <laughs> Well, he would, I can tell you one thing, Rick will not jump out of a perfectly good airplane. So he's definitely not going to jump out of that airplane. I want to kind of go backwards again here. Um, Because now you guys, you guys are in Idaho. Uh, You're you're still doing the the aircraft thing, right? You you own the the aircraft service. Is that, is just to make sure I I clarified that? Well, we ended up, um, we lost our director of maintenance. So we had to, um, 
and Rick was down, tired of dealing with the FAA and everything. So and we lost our director maintenance. It's hard to pay somebody for just that four months we need, and we couldn't afford to pay them for the whole year. So oh, we ended yeah. up selling the planes and the business, and he always wanted to fly big jets, so now he's working for Alaska Airlines. So oh, gotcha. he's, he's flying big jets now and, and based out of Seattle. So we kind of travel between Seattle and Idaho. Oh, nice. Back and forth. Kind of get the yeah. best of both worlds. You get, get the. Well, I won't call see anything about. No, well, no, I shouldn't say that on here, but um, <laughs> we're, we're not. Let's put it this way. We're not city people. So we would much prefer to be in Idaho. Yeah. But he has to be there some to fly. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think you'll offend anybody in this audience. I, I, okay. <laughs> I, I cut myself there. <laughs> what kind of talk about where this um, <clears throat> this draw and this passion for for Africa and African wildlife, where did that come from? Where did that develop? Well, you know, from early on, from the time I was a little girl, I was just infatuated with Africa. I have always loved African wildlife and I've always wanted to go there. And then, of course, you know, that's just one of those dreams you put on hold for so many years. And and Rick and I, you know, we met and then I started, you know, even though my family hunted, I never went with them. That wasn't, you know, I didn't see the deer till they were hanging up in the garage, you know, so I wasn't a part of the hunt. Now, once I met Rick and he wanted me to go with him, I started going with him on hunts and I started, I just started really enjoying it. I mean, not, I I still had no desire to pull the trigger. So I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, but, um, but I enjoyed the hunt. I enjoyed the challenge. I don't know if that's, I want to stop you for a minute. I don't know if that's hypocrisy. I I think that, you know, it's, and I've talked about this a few times, like my wife doesn't hunt, but if, if I'm being lazy during hunting season, maybe, and threatening uh, a winter without a freezer full of meat, she's not shy about letting me know and 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 putting you know a proverbial foot up my butt to make sure I get out there, right? Uh, so uh-huh. she and she is she has always been that way, like you described. She um, values hunting and and understands its necessity, but she doesn't want to be the one pulling the trigger. Um, and, and so, I, and I respect that and, and she has, you know, she's, she's not shy about it. She, it's just not, not something I, I don't think it needs to be explained in, in the fashion of hypocrisy. You know what I mean? Uh, okay. Well, that's good because I, I never really know how to explain that because yeah, it's, it's I, just I just don't feel the need everybody. to pull the trigger, but I do, I have to say, I enjoy the experience. You know, I used, was always a hiker. I was always about getting from point A to point B, mm-hmm. but when you go with a hunter, it's more about the journey. You know, it's more about like looking at every leaf and looking at, I mean, just, well, you know what it's like, you're looking for everything and you don't really care how far you get. It's more about, get, you know, what you're seeing along the way, so to speak. So yeah, I, yeah. And it's testing your body. I mean, that's, you know, hiding in, El- in Idaho is tough work. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's a good challenge. Yeah. that And uh, you said it very well. Um, hunting, you know, pulling the trigger is the most consequential, inconsequential part of being a hunter, if that makes sense. Uh, it's, it's a two way, it's a two way thing. It's, it's about the full experience and there's so many layers of hunting and, and, you know, the prep, the preparation, the, the experience, the waking up in the morning, the, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the, the, the visuals that just kind of click in your mind and and last forever. Uh, you know, the pulling the trigger part or releasing the arrow part is, is a small 
part of it, yet it is consequential. And and that's in my mind, it's always almost kind of a once that once that trigger is pulled, it's 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 kind of a bummer. It's like, man, well, this is over. This hunt's over. Now the work starts. And so that's I, I could see being a person that wouldn't want to be the the person behind the the weapon still getting full enjoyment out of what a hunt is. And and going back to my wife, she loves going along with, with hunts, mm-hmm. um, especially on a on a September archery hunt where, where the elk are just screaming at, a, at us in our face, you know, and getting yeah. that getting that exhilaration. You know, there's, I, and I always relate it like this. Think about all the people that live in these big urban, like we were talking about Seattle. Think of the people that live in Seattle and other big urban centers where, like, they'll never experience that. They'll never experience that. Not because they're not hunters. It's because they're generally not going to be in the elk woods in September. Kids are back in school. You know, it's cooling off. All those kind of factors kind of play into it. And they're not screaming at a bull trying to get a bull to respond. It's just an experience that so many people on this planet will never experience. Just like in your book, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. The the tetsi fly, the sets tetsi fly, tetsi fly. So I don't want to experience those. Um, <laughs> no, you don't need to experience those. I did it for you. <laughs> Why? Well, I, I appreciate your sacrifice because that sounds terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, they're nasty little buggers. Man, you guys had all those clothes on. They're still getting through it. It's crazy. Oh, it's crazy. It's I thought crazy. mosquitoes You're in so- North Idaho were bad, but nope. Yeah, they're no, they're nothing compared to a, and they're so like they're actually a little smaller than a housefly, so they're just so deceptive looking. But they're just oh, they're just they're not little miniature vampires like I call them. They're little flying miniature vampires is what they are, and they suck the blood of you, and they don't die if you keep hitting them. They're like a vampire; they don't die. And you I. Gotta t- our, our PH always had to twist the head off. He would he would like grab them somehow, and he would twist the head off. That's how he would kill those little flies. No kidding! <laughs> it's crazy. Like they were yeah. that hardy, huh? Oh, they are. They're just tough. It's crazy because you I mean, talked about in the book how like that part of Africa never got conquered because the horses from you know big European empires or whatever uh, couldn't go into there because of these flies, and that's what kept that part of Africa from being overrun from foreign invaders. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy to think that what the, the impact, what a little fly can do. I know. I had no idea to be honest either until I researched, you know, for the book. And then the more I learned, I was just like, Oh my gosh. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, I knew how they felt and I knew certain things about them. But when I, you know, of course had to have more knowledge to write the book, I was, I mean, really we can thank those little buggers for, large parts of Africa still being wild yeah, or, yeah. or there'd be, you know, um, you know, it would have been domesticated earlier cause you know, horses can't survive around and cattle don't do well around them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's pretty amazing really. And getting back to where, when, when you talk about when you were young, you had this fascination with the wildlife in Africa and, and always wanted to visit and go, um, did that just come like, were you, were you checking out a magazine and, and saw some animals or, or watching a, a show on TV or, uh, well, talk I watched, about that. do you remember, this is going to age me, but do you remember Kimba the white lion? Oh yeah. Um, yep. Cartoon. Yep. Well, that was, that was, um, I don't know how to keep, my friend keeps trying to call it. I don't know how to, how to, but anyway, hopefully I did that. Um, but anyway, 
Are you hearing that buzzing? I, I'm not hearing it, so okay, good. Don't, well, don't I'll worry just about that. it. But um, anyway, um, yeah, I watched Kimba the White Lion cartoon from an early age, and then I just think I watched anything Africa related and Tarzan. Now I was, <laughs> I was into <laughs> Tarzan, and being having four brothers and a dad, and that's when you, you know, you had you were lucky if you had one TV in the house. Yeah. And so, like, football would be on. Like, I'd be watching Tarzan movies on a Saturday afternoon in the middle of the winter, and my brothers would come home, and then the channel would get changed. And I never knew how those Tarzan movies ended. And it was so infuriating to me. I still hate football to this day because I think it just ruined all my Tarzan um, <laughs> all my Tarzan movies. <laughs> but, but anyway, I was outnumbered in our house, so yeah, I didn't have a choice. Yeah, it sounds like it. That's a, yeah, sounds like it for sure. One, uh, that's what's so weird is like when Rick wanted to go, I understood that's what's so weird about me. And I'm not the only American. I mean, we understand hunting like deer and elk and turkey. But when it comes to hunting African wildlife, we have them in a whole different category. I mean, like we are just so emotionally attached to them, to those animals that we just see it differently somehow. And then, of mm -hmm. course, there's that whole trophy hunting thing where, um, as soon as you put trophy hunting in front of a word, it, it villainizes the hunter and makes everybody look, it's just a way to make them look evil. And there are these entitled rich people who go hunting in Africa. It's just such a negative, negative term that the antis have really latched on to. Yeah, that is the uh, go-to term for the United or the Humane Society of the United States. Is they don't ever just refer to somebody as a hunter or a bear hunter or a deer hunter or anything like that. It's all trophy hunter. And what is a trophy hunter? I, I've never understood that term because even in when you're talking in Africa, with the exception of um, which, which is a totally different dynamic, actually. Uh, so it's not with the exception of the poachers that go after the rhino horns, right? That Those are not hunters. So when you're talking about your, your husband shot that Cape buffalo and how quickly mm -hmm. it, it was broken down and, and processed, like these, just like here in the States, nobody shot that as a trophy. Nobody's, nobody's, disregarding the rest of the animal because they have a trophy in the states it's the same thing do i want to shoot the biggest elk i could find absolutely absolutely I, and i i do want to put antlers on the wall i do want to put uh, i want to show that that experience and and it's not so much as in a you know some braggadocious way it's it's less about that and more about the reminder of the memory that i've i've had for that especially as i get older uh, the older I get, the more this makes sense, and and I think that it maybe didn't make sense when I was younger, and I and and more, um, you know, prone to falling victim to propagated messages like you know, oh these are these are trophy hunters because I remember there was a time I've always been a hunter my whole my whole life, but there was a time in my life where I felt like maybe, you know, hunting a giraffe in Africa is bad, you know that that's because that was the message that that's the only message I would get. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it's the same as when you talk about in the book, when you were in your twenties, uh, your feeling towards wolves and, and, uh, you know, let's, let's talk about that before we get to the book in Africa. Um, because I think okay. that's, a, you have such a unique perspective on that because you've lived this life so far removed from wolves and, and, 
were were involved and and passionate about getting wolves reintroduced to faraway lands that didn't impact you in a daily life, and this is what you talk about in your book, um, to the other side of the spectrum where you live amongst the wolves, where th- this isn't a distant thing for you anymore. And so I think you have one of the probably the, one of the most unique, credible perspectives on on this topic that I, I can think of. You can you can you talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, you know, I think that's one of these things. Just I just okay. I'm, I do. How do I say this? Um, I feel like in some ways my experience has set me up to write this book because I just feel everything in my life led me here. But the wolf thing is one of those things because I grew up in my 20s, a total wolf advocate. I mean, I was, you know, I'm passionate pretty much about whatever I, whatever it is at the time, you know, whatever it is I love, I'm passionate about. Yeah. So yeah. I wrote letters to the senators. You know, I was on these action alerts where they'd send you a thing. That's back before email and all that stuff. So, you know, <laughs> I'd have to send type out letters and send them to the representatives. I donated money to Wolf Reintroduction. I did all that stuff. I wasn't thinking about how it was affecting the people in Idaho. Well, well, actually, it's not that I didn't care. I actually thought, well, they'll just be reimbursed. If they lose a cow or something, they'll be reimbursed. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's no big deal. I mean, I don't know if I wanted to say it was no big deal because I still was always a caring person. But I just didn't think of all the aspects of it. You know, and then come to find out 10 years later, here I am smack dab in the middle of wolf country. You know, and hunting with my elk and those or hunting with my husband and those first few years were just, you know, amazing. We were always into elk and you hear them bugling and we had our favorite spots. And, you know, my brothers would come from Pennsylvania and we put up these wonderful camps and, you know, clear in the back country and just have you know, wonderful time. And, and you don't still don't always get an elk. It's still really, really hard work. And um, but the experience was just amazing. And spending that quality time in the woods was amazing. Mm-hmm. But then as the years went by, you know, I saw the decrease. I saw the decline. And then, you know, I remember that last time, as I talked about in the book, that we went to our favorite spot that we had been going to for years. We saw zero elk. All we saw was wolf poop. And all it was in it was hair. It was just so weird looking because it just looks like, it just looks like big clumps of hair. But it's, yeah. you know. Yeah. But so it gave me a whole new perspective. And we are like near two of the hardest hit zones. You know, we're right, right close there. So um, and then then we went to another elk habitat and the same thing happened there. They moved in there in the North Fork country. And um, it was the same type thing. You know, I mean, I mean, I was sitting. Well, that's maybe too much information, but I was. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if you read the book, I was I was doing my business over a hole in the ground precariously in the middle of the night with a lantern on my head and the wolves were howling in the distance. And it was just, um, the, you know, yeah, the yeah. mules were going crazy. And anyway, it was crazy. But, um, crazy... but yeah, so I saw it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, you did. And that's I, I'm trying to go back in your book here. I'm looking for a particular quote, but I haven't found it yet. But. To sum it up, the your your emotional perception versus what the realities on the ground are. It was a great quote. I'm, I thought I I eared dog eared the uh, page, but apparently it came out. But my daughter. I was gonna say, um, it interestingly, 
uh, and I told you this before we started recording, but I haven't even finished the book because my daughter stole it. Uh, my my 12-year-old, <laughs> Shiloh, she took it when it got delivered and didn't think of letting me know that it was there because it might be for the podcast. She just thought it was a good book and wanted to go read it, and at which I encourage. She's a great reader. <laughs> so anyways. Well, I'm glad she read it. <laughs> yeah, she, she loves it. So um, I'm a little over halfway through it, uh, but it gave me the gist of, of what you were getting at and that the, the chapter regarding you know your your experience back coming to Idaho experiencing you know elk prior to this uh, you know 10 year period of no wolf management uh, and how that evolved into these desolate lands that produced very little elk to now we can manage our wolves and how that's kind of come back Um you, you, now, and I, I agree with what you say in the book. The last couple of years, I've really noticed a difference in terms of the elk are becoming more vocal again. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. seeing more of them. I'm having more elk encounters. I'm seeing more sign. Uh, and and there's, there's a couple things that is happening. Um, because like you, I do not blame the wolf for all of Idaho's woes. Uh, in regards to elk, there's a lot of factors that play mm-hmm. in winter kill, other predators, all that, all that stuff. But it is an interesting dynamic when you look at the decline in elk numbers and and the the uh, advanced or or I guess the growing population of wolf uh, numbers out there. It, it's all at the same time, right? There, there's a that that is the factor. That is the one thing that came in and was a significant change to our landscape here. Um, that that took us from in the 1990s being one of the prime elk states in the nation to um, you know not not somewhere that people really seek out in terms of with the exception of it just because we have over the counter tags. Other than that, it's not like we're you know some state that people really seek out to go elk hunting anymore. And I, and and it it used to be that way. However, um, this is a long way of just trying to make a simple point of <laughs> I agree with your assessment. <laughs> the elk numbers are are coming back due to wolf management, and I think that that's a huge factor. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to present both sides of it. You know, I wanted to make yeah. sure I was open and said so that you know, let me people make their own kind of deductions from it, but um, just experience what I learned and what I you know, kind of give all sides of it basically. Can I ask you something on that? Um, sure. W- Looking back to when you were in your 20s and you're writing these letters to, you know, promote the the reintroduction of wolves into, you know, the Yellowstone ecosystem in Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming, uh, and you were advocating for these wolves, uh, and then putting yourself in your shoes where you're at now and your perspectives and your wisdom has changed, all all these things that, you know, obviously folks listening to this need to read the book to fully understand, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? in regards to wolves, um, knowing the oh, mindset you were in, in your twenties? I would, I would tell myself to, it's good to have emotions. You know, we all have them and, and they're important. And I think we can't deny that, but we also have to look at facts. We have to get past our emotion and look at the big picture. I think you can't just look at one little slice of something and also, you have to understand that everybody has a, um, what's that word I'm looking for? Everybody has a agenda. So mm-hmm. when you're reading those action alerts that I was reading, they have an agenda. They want money and they, 
you know, and, and, and I'm not going to say they're all, um, they might have been well-intentioned, some of them, but some people aren't well-intentioned. And you, you have to look at both sides of things. If you really believe in something and you really want to stand behind something and, and um, put your voice to it like I did, I should have done my research. You know, so that's what I would recommend now. You know, there's always two sides to every story. And we, if, we, if you're going to support something full heartedly, you, you better research so you are well versed on both sides, I think. Do you think that uh, saying that to your 20-year-old self, your 20-year-old self would have listened? I don't know. You know, I hate to say that. Um, well, don't hate to say it. I, th- I think that, I, you know, when you when you come at it from a very mature perspective, like like the way you just articulated it, like it makes sense. It's like, oh, okay, okay. In in my mind, I'm in my 40s. I would have been like, oh, okay, okay. You know what? You're right. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the time. I'm gonna learn about different aspects of this argument, and and really fully educate myself so I understand the full picture, not just a one sided biased. You know. I'll give you a great example. I was arguing with somebody on Facebook that was a, a pro-wolf advocate, but she was every time she'd make a point, she would cite all these uh, these sources that are so lopsidedly pro-wolf that it's like I, I I think that's an important thing for people to understand. Citing a source that is so lopsidedly one one way biased does not prove your point. That, you know, and so I don't know where I was going. I kind of lost my train of thought, but I, I do want to say that, like, I, I think that there's people that could take the the information that you just told them. Right. And, and it's your 20 year old self. And they're so emotionally attached to the idea that that's not going to sway them. And I think it takes it takes some experience in life to, to get to that point. Because I was on the reverse end of that, where I hated wolves. I wanted them eliminated. I didn't want them reintroduced. Uh, didn't want because I didn't know. Now, in in where I'm at with in my life, I find it important to have wolves on the landscape as long as they are tightly managed. Because I, I think that having wolves makes makes our uh, our wild places a little bit more wild and more authentic to, as to how they used to be. But to allow them to run unmanaged is obviously problematic for every other species. So I hope that makes sense the way I explain that. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, um, unfortunately some of some things do just come from experience, you know, so yeah. um, as much as we, and, and that's why I try to kind of, t- you know, and, and even, and we continue to learn. I mean, here I was, I learned that lesson about wolves but then when it came for my hun- husband went to hunt a zebra, I went right back to the same thought process. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're all guilty. I mean, because I did not want him hunting a zebra. Um, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, we got twenty some horses on the ranch. Um, you know, his family does, and uh, you know, it's it's like a lot of horse. It's going to be so easy. It's not fair um, chase. I had all these misconceptions and Rick kept telling me sue their wild animals that and of course I'm not going to tell Rick what or what to do and and because I still was in this world but I still just didn't get it get it you know yeah. but that's how I'm able to draw talk about wolves because I kind of had to relearn again I mean 
here I was doing the same thing with zebras that I did with wolves. I mean, not to the extreme. I didn't write letters and, you know, all that kind sure, of stuff. Sure, sure. But um, I had basically, no, I had to relearn. I had no idea zebras were such savages. And, uh, like, I've always, I've always wondered, why don't they domesticate some zebras and they can use them to ride around in the savannah. <laughs> and so <laughs> I learned in your book why that isn't possible. So that's uh, very interesting because I would have a hard time with that too. I used to have horses. And so the thought of, of uh, shooting something that looks like a horse is, is a bit troublesome to me, but uh, you know, I would do it. I would do it because uh, my, um, more pragmatic side, uh, would definitely kick in and, and I could, I could see it, but I, like you look at zebras as if like, they, you know, they're, I used to have this horse named bad whiskey and, uh, I was, <laughs> I like the, the name. Yeah. He, he would, and he was, uh, he had quite an attitude. He loved me and would let me ride, but anybody else, he'd kind of give him a hard time. And, and so, uh, that's kind of where the name came from. But anyway, um, he was a great horse, but the point is, is I, you know, you grow so attached to these animals and, and then you see the similar version in Africa that the only difference is they've, they've got stripes and, and, and that's just from a, a layman's perspective. There's a lot of differences that I, I can't describe you do in the book and it, and it makes sense after that. And so you made a, made a great case for it. Um, when you got, when you got to Africa, you, you'd spent your entire life kind of building this up and, and getting to Africa to experience this trip and these haunts and this this uh, camp that you stayed in with, you know, the wildlife outside at night, keeping you guys up all night. Um, what was the perception you had in your mind as to how this would, how Africa would be versus what the reality of it was? Well, being that I'm a non-hunter and had dreamt about it my whole life, I was picturing myself going like Kruger National Park or the Serengeti and just driving by and watching animals just stand there as I took pictures, picture after picture, you know, and then you, you know, you take a couple tours, you go home or you go back to your hotel, you rest in a pool during the yeah. heat of the day. I mean, so... Um, I had no intention of sleeping in a tent with lions roaring outside. So it was, um, it was totally, it was it totally blew my mind basically, but in, in a good way. Um, I mean, I was scared to death. Don't, don't get me wrong. I was like more than anything. I was petrified of black mambas. I mean, I was just scared to death of those things. Yeah. Talk and, about those suckers. I don't want to go hunting where there's black mambas either. Oh my gosh. There, you know, you, you essentially have about 20 minutes to live. I mean, sometimes I think you can live a little longer, but if you don't have an antidote and you don't, people don't carry antidotes mostly in these kind of places and the chance of having it right when you get anyway, they're basically a death sentence. So, um, Damn. They're, they're nasty snakes. Now, granted, they're a shy, they're aggressive if cornered, but from what I learned, you know, those pHs and stuff, the professional hunters, they're just amazing. Their knowledge, their knowledge is just amazing. Yeah, I want but, to talk um, about that. I, I love that part of it because they, they are, but I, I just real quick, are the black mamas, are those the ones that would, in the tall grass, stick their heads up like a... Like a periscope? Yes, like a periscope, yes. But luckily, they are a shy snake. So Raphael always told me, Sue, you know, don't worry. They, they hear our vibrations. They hear us coming. They're going to get out of the way. But now in the second sense, they would they would say, no, don't be sticking your hand in some hole or a 
tree. You know, I mean, you got to yeah, be yeah. aware. You don't want to ever corner one. But anyway, but yeah, they, they were they're scary stuff. <laughs> Can you talk about? Um, yeah, I I wouldn't want to hunt with them. I, and I'm not like one of those people that's terrified of snakes or anything. Uh, you know, I grew up around rattlesnakes. It was it was just the norm. But um, those things, the the fact that you have like 20 minutes, maybe 30 to live if you don't have the antidote, I, I'm good. I, I'm I'll 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 stick to Idaho. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I I do have an interest. Uh, you know, honestly, before reading your book, I, I had zero interest in going to Africa to hunt. And for me, it's because uh, I I like the um, I, I I don't have a lot of interest of hunting with a guide. And now that I I've read your book the the team that that takes you guys out when you're when you're going after you know something like a like a cape buffalo those things are intense um i can you describe the team for for folks listening that might have a misconception of what hunting in africa is because it's not the same thing as hunting with a guide here in the states uh it, it is not the same reason to have them it's not the same um dynamic you it's had, a lot different yeah yeah talk about that i love it well and, and get granted now i'm t- talking about tanzania every country is pretty much similar but you know they each have their own little quirk so specifically tanzania however sends you with um you have to have a, a government game scout with you at all times so we had a professional hunter which we call ph um, we had two trackers, a head tracker and a helper tracker. We had a driver who drove the, the Jeep or the Land Cruiser. And then we had Lillian, who was our Tanzanian game scout. We were fortunate to get, um, fortunate for me to get, um, this young female game scout who spoke pretty good English. So it was just amazing. We were able to build this great relationship that, but yeah, Tanzania, it's required. You have to have this, and she's not affiliated with the hunting organizations or with a hunting concession in any way. Yeah. Like she met those, there was 21 people taking care of four of us, if you can believe that. And um, I never thought of myself as being spoiled, but after you're in Africa, you realize we are spoiled. So, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, so, so she Lillian. never met them either. She met them the same day that I met them. And oh, that's by okay. design. They don't really want game scouts getting too cozy with concessions, you know, um, with the hunters or with the hunting concessions. So to make sure everything's legal and everything. But yeah, so she rides in the front of the Jeep, the driver drives on the left side. And then Rick and I and the PH professional hunter up are on the bench seat on the back. And then the trackers are kind of like standing behind us in the cargo hold. And like they have eyes like hawks. And yeah, that's it's what you're just seeing. unbelievable. I mean, they could see a kudu here 300 yards away behind some brush. And, you know, he would like the tracker would tap Raphael and then Raphael would tap the driver and the ra- driver would hover to stop or else he'd signal to go hide the vehicle to try to get it. If, we, if you know, till we could figure out if it was an animal worth pursuing or not. But, um, but yeah, the PHs are there to, first of all, make sure you live. You know that you don't die, <laughs> and um, and you know hunting animals in Africa is totally different than um, you know you shoot different spots. I mean, Rick did all the studying in the world to for shot placement, but but they're different. I mean, it's still you you can you can judge an elk's horns, but can you judge a sable's horns or a kudu's horns? Nope, I mean, I you might you know, yeah. So you really need them, guys. There's and they're. They're just, they're just a wealth of information. 
And so Lillian, uh, getting back to Lillian, I, would it be fair mm-hmm. to say that it would, in, in the states as hunters here, it would be it would be similar to having going like to a a, a hunting ranch um, that takes you out onto public land, kind of kind of thing. Uh, and mm-hmm. and to ensure that all laws are followed, they attach a game warden to your party. Does that? Does Exa- that? Yeah. Yep, that's similar. Yep. And that's what she was, and, and she also carried an AK-47. For what reason? Well, for poachers mainly, because she wasn't so much worried. Because I asked Rick that, you know, I asked them that, but it was required. She had to carry that thing at all times. I mean, like you never saw it, her set it down. I mean, except when we were at camp, she was allowed to put it down a little bit, but um. But yeah, it was mainly for poachers, I think, because of really you had the you had Rick carrying a gun and you had um, Raphael carrying a gun, so she probably really wouldn't need it for the animals, although that it would have mm-hmm. you know it wouldn't have hurt to have it. I, it I'd use it on the black mamba. After us. Oh, well, you know, you were talking about those black mambas when we were going after those um, the first the Cape Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, everything happened so fast. I didn't know what was happening. Next thing you know, we're just like we're running. We're all just running, and we always did it single file. And I was always behind the head tracker, go go. We and um, I could hardly keep up, and I'm breathing hard, and I'm running, and all, and I'm looking for black mambas. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, they don't have time to get out of my way. Um, I, mean, <laughs> I was, I was barely even looking at the Cape Buffalo. I was my feet. I was just looking on the ground. I kept thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to step on a snake. I'm going to step on anything. And then before you knew it, all of a sudden, there's like hundreds of Cape Buffalo in front of me. I, I didn't even know what we were running for, to be honest. Everything had happened so fast, but it was crazy. Scree gear. Have you guys checked it out yet? Scree is extreme mountain gear. The high-performance hunting attire, scientifically tested, backed by a great company. It's my go-to camo, and of all the discussion we have about all this uh, infighting amongst hunters about what kind of gear they choose, it's okay to have a favorite, as long as we're not fighting about it. And my favorite and my proven gear is Scree. Scree is spelled S-K-R-E. It's kind of a play on the word from Scree Rock found at the bottom of a cliff face or something like that. And they changed the name, and Scree gear is a complete layering system for all terrain and conditions gear designed to adapt to the weather it's rugged gear and it's all backed by a lifetime warranty one of, one of the things i really like about scree is their vip sizing and exchange program order the wrong size pants they don't fit right send them back they'll send you another pair it's all on scree's dime guys it's a great company check them out at screegear.com and use the promo code the western huntsman for 15 percent off and free shipping Hoffman Boots is another show favorite right here at the Western Huntsman. There's lots of good boots out there. Uh, there's a lot of bad boots out there, too. But Hoffman is a proven, proven system that I've been using for a few years. Actually, I've been using them for close to a decade now. And I love the company. I love the story of the company. It's like a family of shoemakers. And it's just a great North Idaho story. It's a great American story. They make a great boot without breaking the bank. Check it out at hoffmanboots.com and use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. Don't forget, Phelps Game Calls is my go-to call company. You guys know it. I've been using Phelps for a long time. They're the oldest sponsor on this show. I'd say the flagship line of calls that they have is definitely geared towards elk. And what a great job that they do. But don't forget that Phelps Game Calls also has a full line of like waterfowl calls, predator calls. There's things that you can check out on the Phelps website that might surprise you. 
to include something that is coming up quick for us hunters, which is spring turkey. And I don't know how many of you are into spring turkey hunting, but man, is it a ball. It's a riot. you got to check it out. I love the black bat from Phelps Game Calls. It works very well for me. It's a great little read. And try out the uh, blacktail in distress call uh, when you're hunting bears. I'd love to hear if somebody calls one in that way. I've tried it a few times with, with no luck yet, but the you know we got a whole new season coming up, and it's coming quick, and I'm going to try it again. So check out phelpsgamecalls.com. Use promo code HUNTSMAN10 for 10% off. If you check out the westernhuntsman.com, you are going to find anything from T-shirts to Tacticam gear and all of that stuff. A portion of those proceeds is going to go towards conservation and fighting against the anti-hunting movement. Plus, you'll be sporting a cool t-shirt that says a Western Huntsman. And now I'm not the greatest t-shirt designer in the world, but I do have a friend that is. And he helped me put together a couple of really cool t-shirts on there. They're up now at thewesternhuntsman.com. And you could check it out. And, guys, it, it supports the show. It helps me pay for all this equipment to get these shows out there. And to top it off, we're going to help fight against the anti-hunting movement. And there's a lot of new information and, and big announcements coming up regarding that from the Western Huntsman. So check it out at thewesternhuntsman.com and get you a T-shirt or get you some Tacticam gear. I'd really appreciate it. Let's get back to the show. Here we go. Do they? Does somebody in the party carry the antidote for the black mamba? I don't think so, to be honest. I, I mean, I don't think Dang. ours did. Um, we, we were, we were four hours from the nearest village, sixteen hours from a city. Um, we had taken a two-hour flight to get back into where we were at, you know, or we could have drove with a six-hour, sixteen hours, but that you know that adds four more days to your trip, you know. So, so we this- chartered a plane, but yeah, we were at way not middle nowhere. In the states, you can buy like the you know the rattlesnake kit or whatever with uh, that medicine in it. I, now, I'm, uh, because I haven't where I hunt now in North Idaho, we don't we don't have a rattlesnake problem. We we don't yeah, you know. So I, I forgot what it's all called. But is there like is the antidote something that private citizens could just buy and take with them? You think? You or? know, they probably could. If you had the funds, you probably could. Um, Huh. I'm just curious. You know, no, no big I'm deal. The wrong I'm the one. To, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it would have to be refrigerated. Um, yeah, which that, there's that no part refrigeration too. where we were at. So um, I feel like I just want to like buy some and send them down to like Raphael, so he's always got it on him. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> I know. Well, you know, and like I said, I, I, you all, if you read the book, you'll know that. I, like I said, I was obsessed with these things, so I was asking everybody that could speak English. Um, do you know anybody that died of a black mamba bite? Do you know anybody that black died? Of a- and after like four or five times of, of hearing, oh, no, not, no one personally, no one personally, I was starting to get like, okay, so, you know, maybe this isn't so bad. And then I asked Joel, who was kind of like the camp host, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. And he, like, he was what I call the, I, he was the, the, um, secret sauce of camp. He was just amazing. But, um, when I asked him, he told me, well, yes, my brother died of it, uh, was killed by a black mama when he was 10 years old. And because he died, um, I'm now the oldest of my 35 brothers and sisters. Holy so cow. In one, in one sentence, not only did I learn that his brother died of a black mama bite at 10 years old when he was herding goats, um, I learned that he was the oldest of 35 brothers and sisters. <laughs> so that was quite that was quite a how, statement. How does but, anybody have 30? Thir- 
like from the same mom? Well, you know, you got to remember it. His his father had five wives. Oh, so, gotcha. You know, it's such a different. Our our camp where we were at was represented by six different tribes. There were six different tribes there, and different customs and different things. Now, Joel had only one wife. He said, "I'm I educated. I only have one wife." But um, but his brothers, a lot of them still had multiple wives. I mean, it's a cattle society there, and that's how your um, that's how your wealth is um, measured by how many cattle you have, like in those areas, mm-hmm. you know, that's how you pay for your, for your wives or, you know, I mean, or it's, yeah, the more cattle you have and the more kids you have, the wealthier you're considered. How, how long were you guys in Africa for? Just about three and a half weeks. Okay. Three and a half weeks. So in- not, you know, not like years or anything, but then I've done a lot of research too, since I learned a lot of stuff there. And then I heard so many stories. And then of course, to when I wrote the book, I had to back up what I felt, you, you know, I, I came to understand how important hunting was to um, Africa and how it saved wildlife. But I knew I had to back that up um, with with knowledge, you know, and, yeah, and yeah. like you were talking about that before um, person quoting to you on Facebook about those sources. Well, when I backed up my stuff on in the book, I used non hunting sources. I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. I wanted the book to be non-biased, so I used non-hunters and biologists and conservation organizations. I didn't use like um, go hunt hunting sources wherever possible. <laughs> yeah, 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 so. yeah, yeah. Um, and that's that is the point of what I was trying to make. She was she was advocating for wolves using sites like SaveTheWolf.org kind of thing, and it's it's you know uh, it hasn't been to Idaho apparently because the wolves here don't need saving. But um, what what surprised you the most about Africa when you got there and, you, you know, you, you talk in great detail about these flies and the heat and, and these different things. Uh, and, and I want to tell you, uh, I've been to Africa uh, on a totally oh, okay. different experience. So I was I was in the Marines and uh, we were chasing terrorists in the Horn of Africa in a little country called Djibouti. Uh, to include okay. crossing over into uh, Somalia uh, pr- very, very, you know, quickly. Um, I'm not saying that I've hunted Africa, and I'm not not saying it because patrolling through some areas in the Horn of Africa, these baboons are nuts, and they scare the shit out of grown <laughs> Marines at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> And I'm not saying a baboon got shot, and I'm not not saying it. But I am saying that <laughs> you could say I've been hunting in Africa if uh, you read the cards right. So I've been there, and I was quite surprised for, for a lot of different reasons. But the part of Africa I was in is totally different than the part of Africa you were in. So what surprised you the most about going to Africa? Well, I think more than anything, um, just... How do I, 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 I think it kind of goes back to, um, you know, we, we think of it all as these national parks, you know, we, we mm-hmm. see the Serengeti and we see all these places and we, all these tourists streaming by and the animals just standing there. And it's just like this big drive through zoo, but Africa isn't, it's wild. I mean, I mean, there are parks of course, but hunting concessions can, Oh, I'm not good with statistics when they're not in front of me, but they preserve so much more land than national parks, like twice as much or something. So, and what I learned more than anything 
was not every place is, you know, I used to think, well, why can't we preserve lions and elephants by photo tourism? But once you're over there, you realize photo tourists, most general tourists do not want to be in the places we were at. Um, they don't want to deal with tsetse flies. They don't want potholed roads that throw you, you know, elephant potholed roads that throw you all over the place. They don't want to sleep in a tent with lions roaring outside at night or get a shower that came out of a hole. You know, the water came out of the hole in the ground three foot, you know, three foot muddy yeah. or sandy <laughs> muddy hole in the ground. Yeah. Um, so it's just a whole different like um, you, you just start when you're there, you just start realizing how hunting is so important more than anything to preserve habitat. I mean, that's the number one thing, even though sometimes that's left out of the equation. It's definitely left out of the equation when you talk to antis, but mm -hmm. um, don't for sure. It's just, yes, but habitat loss of habitat is a number one threat to all wildlife throughout the world. Mm -hmm. So anything you can do to preserve habitat in its natural state is good. And that's what hunting does. Hunting makes, that that land valuable in its natural state without turning it into crops without turning it into pastures without turning it into human other human sources without mining it without whatever these other human uses are especially it's lackluster land it's 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 you know it's not beautiful as far as it's beautiful in its own rugged way sure but sure it, it's not beautiful in the way a tourist might want to look at it and um, it's not Victoria Falls and it's not those kind of places. So more than anything, hunting protects that um, and gives gives villagers a reason not to, you know, kill the animals and to anyway to preserve the habitat. And kind of kind of reduce the the motivation to poach and, and things like that. I, I really liked how you how you talked about um, the economic factors that lead to poaching and, and how improving the economic factors over there would reduce poaching. And I had no idea that it was like this crime syndicate thing over there. Um, and, and we don't need to go in, into detail with that, but would it be fair to say that when you're talking about how hunting preserves the habitat and, and saves the wildlife in, in the, those ways, the things that you and I know about right what mm -hmm. is, is it a fair assessment to say that like the difference is is when a tourist goes over there to take photographs like like you said they don't go to the same places they're going to you know those the, those those natural parks where they're a little bit more developed or, or accessible so to speak and um, there's and there's big big um amounts of wildlife there you got to realize where yeah. we went there was plenty of wildlife, but not near what you see in those national parks. Not as condensed. So a tourist, photo tourist might be disappointed with what we had, you know, where, where we were at. Is it, the same con comparison could be made. Like, you have a much better chance of seeing a grizzly bear in the in, in Yellowstone National Park than you do, you know, 10 feet outside of the park. Um, mm -hmm. And so so it's, it's the same kind of thing. Um, animals know where they're safest. Uh I guess what I was getting at is like the the, the photography aspect or, the, or just the seeing the wildlife, the, the tourism side, um, the the comparison in funding that that generates in comparison to the funding that hunting generates, because let's face it, how do we save habitat? How do we save wildlife? All of it, it all comes down and boils down to money. It, it, it costs mm -hmm. money to do this. Can you talk? It's can you staggering. Speak to that? It's yeah. yeah, it's it's staggering, really. Um, there's studies that have done um, 
and it goes like you need so many more photo tourists to to bring the same thing to the table that hunters bring you know it's, it's different everywhere you go but there's studies from 16 to 1 to 30 to 1 and there was one place that was actually 1600 tourists to one um because you know tourists they the hunters are happy to like they they sleep well you know a hunter they'd sleep on the ground in the middle of timbuktu on bed and nails if they had to yep but and they're staying in one place typically. They go there. They're there that whole time. Um, tourists, they, they want to see everything. So, and, and don't get me wrong. They need photo tourism. I don't need to be slighting photo tourism at all. Oh, yeah. They nobody nobody is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But they they go differently. So, they'll go to a national park, spend two or three days. So, you got hotel rooms and you got swimming pools and you got, they have to go out to eat and you have all this infrastructure. And they go on a tour in the morning and that tour in the afternoon. And they hang out at the pool in the afternoon typically. And then after two days there, they move on to a different national park because they want to see a different bunch of wildlife or a different scenery. So, then they have a hotels there and they have laundry and all that. And then they move on to somewhere else. You know what I'm saying? It's just, yeah. Um, the, 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 what's that word I'm looking for, but the impact on the environment is way more for those kind of tourists than it is for a hunter. And, um, yeah, you just need way more of them to make the same kind of money. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, it, it's, there's, there's just no comparison. And, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that because I think that that's lost on a lot of people, especially the anti-hunting uh, crowd. They're, they're, they get lost in, in the emotions and the, and you know, that one specific animal of that one specific species that you know was was killed by a hunter and they get they get caught up in 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 a way that they're almost humanizing this animal as as if mm -hmm. i don't know i won't go that direction but they do get lost and caught up in that where they don't look at the realities of what the funding brings and it's the same thing here in the states a bird watcher that is anti-hunting does not generate the same amount of revenue that goes towards conservation and wildlife management that a buying a deer tag does. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's not even a situation where you can compare them to say that it's you know oh that's apples to oranges. No, it's more like apples to uh, Antarctica icebergs. Um, <laughs> does, does that make sense? I mean, yeah. it's just crazy. Well, you know. It's just, I mean, let's talk about lions and leopards for a minute. Okay. Um, you know, that is one of the hot button issues, you know, and, and to be honest, it was one for me, I was kind of didn't understand why we really needed to hunt leopards and lions. You know, they're just such an iconic animal and, you know, there's, you know, isn't there better ways to protect them? But when we, we came across some elephant bones when we were on, on um, safari and Lillian, it opened up a dialogue and there are so many different kinds of poaching that I had never considered, you know, honey poaching, wood poaching, bushmeat poaching. I mean, there's just so many more kinds of poaching than there is just rhino and um, elephant mm -hmm. tusks. But anyway, and what she also said to me, you know, during this learning experience was that um, you, the reason that, lion and leopard hunting is so important is it causes it gives the reason it gives a financial reason for people to let them live essentially because not you know if you have kids and you're raising cattle do you really want lions in your backyard um they're dangerous you know three mm -hmm. three months three months ago three kids were killed they were out after cattle three boys young boys under the age of 12, were killed and eaten by lions as another brother watched from a tree above. 
Now, can you imagine that? I mean, I get chills and teary-eyed every time I think of that. But that just goes you to show you what they are dealing with there. So we have to, you know, they poison lions and, you know, we might want to call them evil. And, and, you know, you see these poisoned lions and these speared babies. You know, I have pictures in the book of of some of that um, Mm -hmm. that was shared with me by a biologist who works in that area. And um, you, you you know, you want to, some people might try to say these people are evil, but hey, they're living with those animals. Their kids are there. Their livelihoods are there. Um, But if you put a financial value on those animals they there is gives an incentive to to try to find ways to mitigate the danger you know maybe they maybe they'll put their cattle in bomas at night or you know pens um, maybe they'll um they'll, they'll just take strategic w- ways to try to lessen the danger so um like if you what i've what i've learned since doing the research since is that a lot of hunting sessions have gotten abandoned since the whole Cecil thing because it's just so harder to make a living but those that's where the poaching's happening you know hunters in the field deter poachers because they don't want to be where hunters are and they strategically place these concessions around the national parks for that reason because it's like a buffer zone for them so anyway there's where where hunting is eliminated it is it is actually devastating to the wildlife so Mm -hmm. um and the people. Oh, for and that's sure. what that is what the people that is what those of us sitting here in our cushy chairs have to understand. Um, whatever whatever policies we come up they come up with for Africa, if the people aren't on board, the local people aren't on board, it's not gonna work. I mean, they have to benefit from the conservation of wildlife. Or, you know, if, if there's no reason to have a kudu on their property, then they're going to raise cattle. You know, they're going to make something that's going to make them money or they're going to kill it and eat it. Um, there just has to be, yes, there just has to, it's no different here. If you have a ranch in Idaho and you have a thousand acres, it has to make you some money, right? You have to be able to live. So you're going to raise a few cattle or you're going to put some crops in. Well, all of a sudden if somebody says, well, Hey, let's just leave it natural and you can sell a couple of the deer off of there. And um, now we have all this habitat and you can make your money by just selling what's naturally on the land. Well, it's it's so much common sense. Once you, you don't even need facts and figures anymore. Once you really think about it, it just I makes know, common yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And it, it's um, the value that it creates to the land itself. Uh, and this is a concept that uh, we, we had talked before we started recording about the, the conversation I had with Dr. Valerius Geist, where where he he talks about, you know, our public lands that we value here in North America, you know, our Forest Service, our BLM, all of our public lands that we all enjoy. Um, and and what, what happens if the wildlife is destroyed and gone, these lands no longer really have value. What What is the value of, of a forest that doesn't have wildlife? Sure, it's still pretty. Sure, it's still got mm-hmm. you know a creek flowing through it, um, and and it's it's pretty to look at, but but there is no value, and that's you know and that all kind of derived about over that wolf conversation without wolf management. That's basically what happens, and and he's proven it through a, a lot of the studies and research that he's done, and it's it's the same thing, and and I like that 
concept that you that you talk about and how you put that because it it simplifies it in a way that I think people can understand that don't get as maybe obsessed about this kind of stuff as you and I do. Uh, like mm-hmm. we, you know, and that's that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's just uh, my my struggle is always getting to the people that they're not they're not absorbed with this stuff, and and they're they're going on with their daily lives, and they're they're not really hunters. They're not really anti hunters. They're just you know um, going on with life. And so, but that's the danger is the messages and the and the messaging from these these propaganda machines like the the HSUS and and things Center for Biological Diversity that like to demonize hunting a tiger or I'm sorry a lion in Africa or um you know a, a caped buffalo or or whatever which I want to ask you what what was the what was your favorite tasting game meat over there <laughs> It's funny you asked that because it was zebra the very animal that I was just so like <laughs> And I, and I and I had really no intention of eating it to be honest. I finally you know I finally recognized you know it was okay. I mean, well, not that I want to say Rick can do whatever he wants, but I was finally mm-hmm. understood the value of hunting it. But I still was not really planning on eating it. But you know, you come home after being out twelve hours, you know, beating around in that sun and TC flies and and you're hungry and you're sitting by the fire and you you know you're waiting for dinner and you have you know, a mixed drink <laughs> mm-hmm, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. the skewer of meat comes that's been roasted over fire comes out to you and well, you eat it and then you find out it's zebra. And so, but yeah, zebra was my favorite meat. I loved it. It I was just it. so delicious. And I hear that from a lot of people actually. I'm super interested. And so I knew your, I knew what your answer was because I read that part in the book. I just wanted the audience <laughs> to hear, but um, I'm super interested to try it now. Uh, that's that's not something I have ever thought to myself that, gee, you know, I'd love to try a zebra. Um, but now now I'm interested. Um, what what do you want to convey? Like the the over, I don't know if overarching message or just the theme of what you wrote about in your book. What would you say is like the main concept of message that you want people to get out of it? Well, first and foremost, I want people to have a good time. I want it to be an adventure, and I want them to feel like they were in in Africa. I want them to get to know the people like I did, get to fall in love with them, fall in love with the place and the animals. So I want them to feel like they're there with me. Okay, can I I stop you right there? Sure, sure. And and I I want – hold that thought because I think that what you just described and how the book – when you read it, the reader perceives it. You achieve that. Uh, you're an amazing oh, writer. You. you you tell the story. It's it's one of those books that's really difficult to put down. In fact, I got in trouble because uh, I was supposed to you know take care of some honeydew list uh, items, <laughs> and I I got I got kind of hung up reading the book. And and it's because you the way you put the reader in Africa with you. Like I was miserable over these dang setsy flies or however you pronounce that. <laughs> And I, I've never even seen one in person. And so I think you do a really good job with that. And if that was your goal, you definitely achieved it. And so good job, because a lot of writers can't do that. A lot of writers struggle with that part. Uh, and, and so I just I just wanted to, you know, make you aware that if that was your goal, um, it definitely you did, a, you did a great job with that. And like, I feel like I'm friends with Lillian and Raphael and uh, Gogo, um, all these folks in the book, uh, like I personally know them. And so... Uh, Kudos to you for that. Uh, 
take it away from where I cut you off so rudely. (laughs) No, that's okay. Well, that's, that makes me so happy because I fell in love with those people and I want everybody else to, too, because I feel like you're not going to care about Africa until you care about the people. Mm -hmm. And so once you can relate to them and relate to their life and how hunting helps them and how hunting saves the animals, um, I don't think a lot of people are going to be able to get on board with why it's important to hunt some of these animals unless you see the big picture and unless you're emotionally involved with the people as well. So that was my goal. But I do want, you know, I figured I want people to learn, but in a fun way, I I don't, I don't want to be um, preaching, you know, I'm not like, bam, 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 this fact, this fact. I just want to weave it in as I learned it. And I want people to just gain this insight and to kind of, I leave it open to them, but I want them to come to the same, I would like them to come to the same conclusion that I have, which is that the sustainable use of wildlife is critical for Africa and its people. So that's the overall, and I, I want them to be able to make their own decisions. I mean, you have all these people, you know, <laughs> preaching all <laughs> I can these tell you're things. passionate. I love it. Yes. And it's just, it's infuriating when they're saying all this stuff when they don't know how it affects the local people. And it's just, um, it's just really hard to see that, you know, I, I you haven't got to this part of the book yet, but um, in my last chapter, I mentioned a slide I saw at one of the seminars I went to, and it was, um, a bunch of um, elders sitting around a fire. And then it was a picture. And then there's a, the caption read, the elders of Africa deciding whitetail deer hunting management in America. Mm. So that to me is powerful. I mean, that's what we're doing, or that's what, you know, that's what people are trying to do. They're, you know, Africa has been doing a good job of managing their wildlife. I mean, I'm not saying there aren't hiccups. There are. There are things that there are always things that can be improved. There's better thing ways to do things. Um, you know, we don't want to sure. even get into all that, but there are definitely things that can be improved. So I'm not saying it's this everything, but um, it's the best system out there right now. So um, anyway, I just feel like you know we got to support Africa and what works for them and what works for their people. We can't be sitting on our high horses and trying to tell them how to run their countries. That is such an important concept that I, I, f- I feel like that is a, that is one of my, I, to, to use one of the buzzwords that all, irritates me is a triggering concept for me. <laughs> the, uh, the meddling in the business where you don't have the full picture painted in your own mind is is such a, a, a it, it just chaps my ass I, I don't know how else to put it these folks in Africa this this wildlife is it has thrived for years without people in San Francisco California chiming in and I, I I'm just picking on San Francisco there it doesn't matter where they're at right it is it is a it is a concept that it, it affects us here. Uh, like like the folks that want to um, get involved in eliminating bear hunts that are critical to 
bear management in states like California and Washington. Uh, these are folks that have never seen a bear in the wild. These are folks that aren't affected by bears in the wild. And it's the same exact thing when you're talking. And it really makes me, uh, it's really frustrating to me to think that the, the, the folks in Africa end up suffering because of those efforts. And I don't know how we get that message out to people to get it in their mind that if, if, because we're here and we're loud and we have opinions does not make us right or give us the right to lecture people in Africa who have been there their whole life, how to wild or manage their wildlife. Does that make sense? How I said that? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and, and that's one thing I do want to mention about the book, even though it's technically about Africa, it really applies to hunting everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hoping that people will, like, especially if I can get non-hunters to read it, um, I'm hoping they'll go on this adventure. And through the adventure, they will come to understand African wildlife conservation, but also understand the heart of a hunter. Because um, it applies to everything going on here in America, too. You know, they're picking, 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 trying to shut this down, shutting that down. They're trying to, you know, divide and conquer. And um, mm -hmm. trying to shut down things here. And I think a lot of hunters feel like, um, oh, Africa, it doesn't really apply to me. But, you know, after they're done with Africa, well, they're already coming after hunters here. But they're just going to keep on coming. So um, I just feel like we have to care about Africa, too. But but I do want people to know if they read this book, they're also going to understand um, hunting in America, too. And they're going to. It, it like for instance, I went to a book club the other day for eight Seattle women, and one I knew, and she had chose it for the book club. All of them were totally amazed with what they learned. They were blown away with the, the they loved the book. Um, they said they look at hunting totally different now, and they even and they're realtors, so they even look mounts on the walls differently. They said I now see a mount on the wall as honoring the animal and as a memory i don't look at it the way i used to wrinkle my nose when i walked into a house so God, that's amazing um, yeah so you know because i don't know if you got to that funny story yet my whole but that's anyway the whole fire <laughs> in my house and then, anyway but <laughs> but that's how i use that's how i i'm able to bring in the talking about the mounts but um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that was really encouraging. But the problem was when I asked them, would you have picked this book up if it hadn't been recommended to you, you know, by my friend? And they said, well, no, we probably wouldn't have because it mentioned hunting. So we wouldn't have picked it up. So that's the problem. That's why I'm that's why I'm kind of reaching out to hunters. I mean, a lot of this stuff is preaching to the choir for you guys. But um you know, I'm just hoping it can find its way to non hunters, you know, the non hunters in, and I'm not saying I'm the like I know everything or that this is the only way. It's just another tool in the toolbox. Exactly. Yeah. And and I would challenge what you said uh, with uh, preaching to the choir. What what we lack with with hunters in general, um, not that I, I'm hunters. Listen, I'm not using like some broad stroke brush here, but there is a it is very difficult to articulate our side and our argument in a way that can emotionally attach itself to people that don't hunt. And, and I, I, to expand on that, what I, what I mean is 
we know that the anti-hunting movement and and folks that don't really understand the the value in in conservation that comes out of hunting, uh, they're very very good at, at articulating these very emotional arguments that are that can be articulated in in a few sentences or uh, very emotionally and very impactful to the individual. Hunters don't have that luxury. To counter those mm-hmm. kind of arguments, it's it's a long, drawn-out discussion. It's it's facts and statistics and data and history and all these things that make people's eyes glaze over. And so when you say you were preaching to the choir with your book, I don't think you were because what what you do, a lot of a lot of authors, uh, a lot of writers try or attempt this where they're trying not to bore people with the educational side of the book that they're trying to convey, um, but they end up boring them. Not the case in this book. You you have a way of of meshing the story in with the the details that speak to. I hate to sound cheesy, but speak to the heart instead of just the the pragmatic mind, right? And so that's important. And I think that hunters will learn a lot as to how to do that and how to how to speak that message uh, to to non hunters. I'm not talking about the anti hunters. The anti hunters are not going to mm-hmm. listen to what what we have to say in most cases. I'm talking about the yeah. We need to reach that middle ground. The we middle need to ground. Reach yeah. That middle ground. Exactly. And and you're exactly right. And that is the challenge. And so hunters would would surely benefit from this because not only are you going to learn about how hunting is done in Africa and kind of walk along with Sue and and Rick uh, through their adventure in Africa for for three and a half weeks of of like this was seriously difficult hunting. <laughs> I just it's, it blows my mind. I'd rather I'd rather go ten miles back in the back country of uh, Idaho than than uh, cruise around like you guys did in the in that kind of way, you know, it's, it's just really hard stuff, but it, it, it all, it also, you get so much out of it in, in terms of the way you can, you can articulate that emotional side of hunting that might actually, uh, attach itself to somebody who is not a hunter. And that's very, very difficult. And so, um, preaching to the choir in terms of, yes, we agree with what your message is, but it's not preaching to the choir in terms of how to articulate that message. And that's what you do well. And so that's why I think all hunters should read this book. And so it's it's an important message, and we all have to be better at articulating this message. Otherwise, we we're not going to have a dog in this fight for very long because because the folks that are against it have mastered that that emotional argument. And so, yeah, I I think I think that it's, it's you definitely- know, and I think that is what I try to do is the emotional part because. I'm not a fact and statistic person. I mean, I, I recognize that they're important, you know, they, mm-hmm. they tell the story, but they don't touch the heart um, in the same way. Yeah. So that's why through this book, I try to, you know, I talk about my emotions and what I go through and the common sense side of things and, and the emotions of the people. And, you know, I try to, I fight emotion with emotion in a way, you know, yeah, because yeah, um, exactly. I don't really rely on statistics that much. I mean, I think I talk about them a little bit, but not too much in general. Exactly. And and it's it's very much I'm learning a lot as to how to do that, because like I told you, you know, I'm working on a book that is uh, that is along these lines. And and I have a hard time not going right to the data. You know, like here's mm-hmm. how many white-tailed deer there were in this year versus how many white-tailed deer, and this is why uh, the white-tailed deer are, are where they're. At. You, you know, it's very difficult for me to not go to those those that statistical data. But nobody wants to sit and read that. Like you might as well sit down and read an algebra book, right? It's it's really hard 
to articulate that in into yeah, where you have to have some of those facts, but you have to have the emotion. You cannot fight emotion with facts. That that is my analysis after fighting these anti-hunters for the last decade. Is I don't mm-hmm. believe you could fight emotion with facts, and you can't just say, oh, you know, you got to have science over emotion. Okay, what does that mean to a non-hunter? What do they care? That, because mm-hmm. it's it's not going to work. So. Anyway, you're no, I agree. We I think you have to fight emotion with emotion. You yeah, have exactly. to get them emotionally involved with the reality of things, if that makes any sense. Couldn't um, agree but, more. But, you know, and that's, I think that's what's so, I guess, unique about my book. You know, I, in doing my research, I, lo- I read a lot of books, but I couldn't find any book from my perspective, like any written by a non-hunter talking about this stuff. I've, there's plenty of hunting books and there's plenty, mm-hmm. and there's even plenty of books about conservation through hunting, but they're real. They're not saying they're not good, but they're dry reading. Like the normal. Only um, hunters would want to read them. Per, yeah. And I don't even know. I mean, some of them were like real. Yeah. But they weren't even. Yeah. Maybe it was just, they were all technical yep. and it's just not easy reading. It's not like sitting down in the evening. I'm going to have read a book type of thing. Now yeah. they were great for me for research. But that's why I tried to kind of weave in everything in throughout the stories and make it fun. Because I feel like if people if it isn't fun, people aren't going to read it. So I had to make it, you know, take them on this grand adventure with me and mm-hmm. hope that they're going to learn while they're there. Basically. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I feel like you did that. So well, thank um, you. I, I, I think that... One of the things, you know, just to back up what I'm talking about there in terms of how important I think that it it is that people read this book, uh, I do want to do a giveaway for the book. Um, And and basically, I I believe the book is just available at Amazon. Is that that correct? Yeah, right now I might go wide later, but um, right now I'm – I'm just kind of overwhelmed with this whole <laughs> the promotional part of it. I got the book in print, and, and right now I'm just dealing with Amazon. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And so, so, so you can get it on which guys the 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 link to get the book. I, I really do encourage you guys to get the book, read through it. Uh, it's a wh- one of the things I really liked about having this book is it's it's a great book to have on the shelf that the entire family could read and enjoy. And then it it creates like my my daughter and I have had some great conversations over this book. So um, it's it's one of those things that's going to drive that. Um, but I do want to do a giveaway, and, and what that's what that is is what I, I want you guys to jump on on Instagram. And uh, let me just pull this back up here. Hey, by the way, Sue, that uh, mm-hmm. sporting goods store in Grangeville it is called Ray Brothers Sporting Goods. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry about that. I feel terrible. I I found it. Yep. I didn't. I didn't want to leave that one hanging. So, (laughs) Um, Ray Brothers Sporting Goods in Grangeville. Uh, Appreciate you guys. So your um, Instagram is suetidwell.rider. Am I saying your last name right? Uh huh. Yep. Suetidwell. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Suetidwell.rider on Instagram and on Facebook. I'm. Sue Tidwell. I have like a, you know, there too, if you want to follow there. Same, same posts kind of go over there, but. That's such a disturbing picture you have of that, um, that hippo picking up that baby hippo. <laughs> Man, <laughs> I just want to rescue that little hippo. I know, it's stuff. awful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so. that And that's why I talk so much about animals in there. Because, you know, I think that's one reason some people really like it is because I talk a lot about the animals. But for you to understand 
Africa and why it's so important, you kind of have to understand the nature of animals. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, yeah. But anyway. no, great point. Great point. And, and that's, that's yeah, applicable everywhere on every continent. So yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Love that. Uh, okay. So here's what to do guys. If you want to, if you want to try to, we're going to run this for like a week, uh, do a giveaway, uh, jump on Instagram. You got to go to a Sue dot writer and, uh, that'll be in the show notes by the way. Uh, and you have to follow her page, her Instagram. And when I post, I mean, if you're listening, you better be, li- you better be following the Western Huntsman on Instagram, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> when I of post, they I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to be releasing this episode this week. So when I pro- pro- post the promotional, uh, episode thing that I always do, I always, you know, send a picture out there. I want you guys to snapshot that and share it to your page. Okay, so you, you have to be doing two things. You have to be following at SueTidwell.Writer, and you have to share the post that I make, which is going to be probably a picture of Sue or, or the book or something like that. I'm not sure yet. We'll, we'll figure that out after we get off the, the recording here, Sue. Um, okay. And, and what you do, how you do that, if, for, for those of you who are like me and don't know much about Instagram, what you have to do is you have to screenshot the post and then share it to your Instagram page um, and tag us in it, you know, that, um, tag us in it and re- refer the book to other people. So uh, that's and, and and the point of this, guys, is to get this message out so that maybe you have followers that are non non hunters that might pick up this book and learn something. Uh, and so that's that's kind of the point. We're trying to spread information and create education where it's going to be impactful for us as hunters and outdoorsmen uh, to, to, to keep this uh, effort of conservation alive and well. So um, once again. Uh, follow at suetidwell.writer and share our episode post to your Instagram and, uh, you know, go ahead and tag us in it. And then I'm going to pick a winner. Uh, we have a, I have this, this program that randomizes everybody and I'll pick a winner and send you the book. Um, and if you're not the winner, just Thank jump you on for doing that, by the way. Oh, no worries. No worries. Thank you for writing the book. It's going to be super helpful. Sure. So, uh, any any closing thoughts that you want people to know about the book before we wrap this up? Or um... well, I'll just kind of end with just um, you know people a lot of times ask why it's called Cries of the Savannah. Well, first of all, I, I fell in love with the Cries of the Savannah. I mean, every laying in the tent at night, you could hear the lions and the hyenas and the hippos, and sometimes the elephants were going through. And, and every night was just like a new adventure in its own. I mean, there was, it was scary, but you woke up in the morning and you would, yeah, it was the talk of the morning. Did, did you hear the lions go through last night at two? Or did you hear the elephants at three in the morning? And so I just fell in love with the cries of the Savannah. So that is where the name came from. And then, but I'm, I'm going to just kind of read this, but the second part was, I am not the same having heard the cries of the Savannah, not only their savage songs, but the cries for the world to awaken, to understand the hard truth needed to ensure the cries forever remain a part of wild Africa and not just ghostly echoes from a distant past. So love it. My, my, you know, it has double meaning basically. I, I'm the cries of the Savannah um, literally, and then the cries for the Savannah for people to understand. So that's the meaning behind the message. title. And I just appreciate um, any help I can get. Like I said, I, I did this on my own. I paid for myself. Um, so I just need all the help I can get to get it out into the world, to, you know, to get it to non-hunters. Um, 
sharing it, talking about it, anything you can do to help in that aspect is just really, really appreciated. Yeah, and it's it's important too. I, I think it's it's just an in, you know, there's a lot of books out there, and I I do not often get authors on the show, um, simply because I I don't want to like inundate. I I you know I could do an entire podcast just just bringing authors on the show, but the the thing is is when the message is important and, and the message is beneficial to to hunting and conservation. Uh, that's what this book is, and it's important that we talk about it. So I just, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, I really love the book, um, and I haven't even finished it yet. I can't wait to finish. I'll have it done by, I don't know, probably 48 hours from here. It'll, it'll, I'll, I'll have it knocked out, but um, <laughs> great job writing it. Folks, jump Thank on you. there and grab that book. You won't regret it, I promise. Uh, and and uh, look out for that, comp- or that, that contest we're going to run if you want to try to win a free book. Uh, that I will just jump on or Amazon and send your way. Sue Tidwell, Cries well, of the Savannah. Thank you very much, Jim, for having me on. I really appreciate it, and uh, thanks to all your listeners. Thank you very much, and uh, looking forward to staying in touch. Sounds good. You made it all the way to the end. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. We sure appreciate your support. This is Jim Huntsman signing off and reminding you to check us out at Instagram at The Western Huntsman and on Facebook at The Western Huntsman. And you can also check out the website at thewesternhuntsman.com. Thanks again. We'll see you guys next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the mountain.